Welcome to Democracy, the podcast that shines light on some of the darkest challenges facing the fight for democracy around the globe. Brought to you by the Consortium for Elections and Political Process Strengthening, in partnership and funding from our friends at the United States Agency for International Development through the Democratic Elections Political Processes Cooperative Agreement. I'm your host, Adrian Ross. At the heart of any true democracy is, of course, the will of the people. In Ukraine, when more than 70 years of communism ended in 1991, it was the will of the Ukrainian people that drove their nation towards greater sovereignty, equality, and prosperity. And yet, as you know, it's been a rocky road. Three revolutions, Russian aggression, and often endemic corruption. But through it all, Ukrainians have remained committed to strengthening the core elements of their democracy, often partnering with SEPs to get it done. Today, with help from the U.S., European Union member states, and NATO nations, it's the Ukrainians again fighting for freedom with an iron will. In the second episode of this Defending Democracy series, The People, we head straight to Ukraine's front lines to check on the people of Mykolaiv. In their town, Russians have weaponized electricity, water, even winter. Yet somehow they've held off the invaders. Plus, three co-chairs of Ukraine's Equal Opportunity Caucus join me to explain how the war is dramatically challenging women's roles in Ukraine. And they'll reveal what they've been up against to keep the Verkhovna Rada of Ukraine running in wartime. But first, more on the people. In peace, more than 44 million people make their home in Ukraine. It's the world's 35th most populous nation and Europe's largest country after Russia, roughly the size of Texas in the U.S. But today, many Ukrainians have fled their hometowns, creating Europe's largest refugee crisis since World War II. The United Nations High Commissioner says that more than 8 million refugees have registered across Europe after crossing into neighboring nations. More than 20,000 civilians have become casualties of the war, and more than 7,000 people have been killed. But OHCHR warns that the numbers are likely much higher, with tens of millions of people in, quote, potential danger of death. Meanwhile, USAID activated a disaster assistance response team to lead the U.S. government's humanitarian response from Eastern Central Europe. To date, USAID has provided humanitarian relief to about 7 million people inside Ukraine. For the most up-to-date numbers from the UN and USAID's response to the war, make sure to check out this episode's show notes. In a country where the national anthem begins, the glory and freedom of Ukraine have not yet perished. No one should underestimate the people. While these next three women wear many hats, they are, above all, Ukrainian patriots. Together, they serve as three of five co-chairs for the Equal Opportunity Caucus and the Verkhov Narada. As you hear them speak, I bet you'll agree they live up to their title, the People's Deputies. Their caucus has tackled everything from gender quota to making sure Ukrainian women can get a proper military uniform for winter. With help from the National Democratic Institute and USAID funding through SEPs, the caucus has achieved some big wins since its start in 2011. Ahead, Maria Inova shares some incredible sacrifices she has made since the war broke out. Then you'll hear from her colleague, Marina Bardina, 
who talks about Ukraine's secret weapon. Well, that maybe isn't so secret. But first, Ina Sovsun tells you why the national anthem makes her cry every time she hears it. You know, the first uh, almost half a year, I was uh, separated from my son, who is turning um, 10 in a couple of days. He was living in the Western Ukraine with some relatives. And in order to see my son, I had to travel 10 hours by train. So I couldn't see him very often. And then, of course, well, my boyfriend left for the army on the very first day. He got mobilized and I knew he would in case that would happen. So I have to wake up every single morning and text him to find out if he is uh, okay. And in that sense, meaning if he's alive, what is common for all of us is that our lives did change dramatically on February 24th. I remember first time when I left Ukraine and I just was really shocked with this situation. I understood that it's better for me to stay in Ukraine and to like do not leave it while a full scale invasion. And we left for participation in a base session in the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe. I saw how people abroad live their normal life at the time when uh, my towns were being bombed by Russian missiles. I was shocked. Uh, I understood that this is absolutely another reality abroad. I just uh, remember how much we were like united, you know, and uh, just since that period, I tried to stay in Ukraine and not to leave. But of course, I understand that it's important for us to travel now to talk about Ukraine. But uh, psychologically, it's uh, too different to be somewhere abroad at a time of war here. Ukraine's parliament has continued to operate in this crisis situation, in this war with Russia on the ground in your country. What has that been like and why has that been so important to you? The primary thing, there is legislation that needs to be passed because martial law and all of that, and we need to react to the situation and so on and so forth. And that, of course, is the case. But I think at least the first two or three months of the war, the most important thing we did was actually stayed in Ukraine, gathered together, showed that we are all still here, that we are here with our people, and that we will stay united. The moment we open every single session by singing an anthem without any music, just people sing, it still breaks my heart every single time. And I think that this shows solidarity and this shows strength and uh, this shows to everybody be it in Ukraine, but also abroad, that we are not giving up and we're staying here. Of course, we have never thought that we even can leave our country in such a horrible time. And of course, we have left, for example, also at the beginning of March, because we have an official visit to USA and Canada and all of us. We are involved in a, a very active participation parliamentary diplomacy. Can you talk a little bit about the Equal Opportunities Caucus and how it's been, in fact, a force for unification in Ukraine? I can share the story of creation if we opportunity to caucus. And of course, it's also thankful it's National Democratic Institute, for example, me as the Philippine cooperating with NDI published starting from 2003. And uh, of course, in the parliament, we have been successful because the goal was to unite around principles and values. And of course, to have common agenda on draft wars where we can succeed in changing legislation on equal opportunities between men and women in a different sphere. I can say that we can be very capable now, if I can say, because of course the war has changed our agenda. 
I understand that the caucus has allowed you to work closer together than you might normally. Is that true? I just remember uh, how we started and just Maria, who uh, was also in previous convocation in Ukrainian parliament, she just asked me for a meeting to discuss the future of equal opportunities, you know, before our convocation. And I I didn't hesitate. I'm sure that uh, we will create this equal opportunities caucus in our parliament uh, also. I'm really happy to have uh, such cooperation with women in Ukrainian parliament. We, we did uh, much work, you know, we uh, voted for electoral gender quota. So next parliament uh, has to present or to consist of uh, 30% of women from like general size of parliament. 30% of women has to be in the next parliament due to this new electoral uh, gender quota. Then we ratified Istanbul Convention, you know, uh, when we just uh, launched uh, the paternity uh, leagues in Ukraine. And uh, now we are actively working uh, on uh, sexual violence uh, by Russian soldiers in Ukraine, you know. And I just really, really happy to understand that all branches of power in Ukraine, government, parliament, presidential office, they are all involved in gender policy. Our president uh, even uses uh, gender-sensitive language in his uh, everyday uh, statements, in his everyday reports to Ukrainian citizens. We are now advocating with our caucus uh, changes in Ukrainian army to support women, to give them uh, more possibilities and opportunities in army. What is it like to have so many women serving in the front lines right now in Ukraine? Ina? On the one hand, indeed, what we're seeing is 50,000 women serving in the battle front. So not just in the army, you know, doing logistics or whatever, but literally in the battle front is a lot. We used to have this post-Soviet tradition of celebrating the, the men's day, which was a military day. And then there was the women's day, which was March 8th, if you can imagine. And then now it's not the same, the people who are in the military and men, that, that's not the same idea anymore. We don't say defend of Ukraine anymore implying that it necessarily is a man. So on the one hand, I do think that there is this challenge to gender stereotypes of men necessarily being, you know, big, strong defenders carrying guns and women being weak and, you know, you know, needed protection and so on and so forth. That's also part of the, of the complicated reality of the day is that, of course, many women actually fell strongly back into very stereotypical role of caregivers because they had to leave to, to take their families away, to take their kids, their elderly parents, uh, uh, whoever else, and actually fall back into very stereotypical female roles. Uh, military LGBTQ people are also getting prominence, and, and the fact that they exist also gave rise to a discussion of potentially legalizing same-sex marriages in Ukraine. I don't think we are, we are there yet when we're close to that discussion, but I think that the fact that anyone who's in the military that is legitimation for, you know, speaking about the rights of this or that group of people in the current situation in Ukraine. So let's be frank, um, it is the Ukrainian woman, uh, really, who is uh, suffering the most and really bearing the heavy burden of this war of conquest, uh, war of aggression. Because as uh, my colleagues has mentioned, women suffers when uh, she's killed as a soldier. Also, women suffers uh, when uh, her husband or father or uh, son, brother is killed uh, as she has also has to take 
care of the family and kids, elders one. Also, women, women uh, suffers uh, when the hospitals and schools has been damaged and destroyed, and they are losing also their job and perspectives, uh, prospects of the future. So we see that really they have to be protected. Active women, women's organization, uh, they turn to be humanitarian organizations, and they also coordinated really the most urgent issues of evacuation of humanitarian corridors, of humanitarian need for women, like who were forced, for example, to flood uh, the um, towns and cities, and also like the deadly danger uh, was uh, following them. You know, it's a, so asset for our country, the impact and the success story of our women who has given this very quick response to very urgent needs, more even than international organizations. Because if you will ask us about International Red Cross or other UN agencies, unfortunately, they were absolutely not capable at the very beginning. We see how a lot of women and men can do together. And that is why I'd like to underline that our caucus is really an example of unity, which we need also in a global way, unity with Ukraine. And of course, our main weapon is unity inside our society. And it's also one of the assets which we can share with other world. I want to go back to the Istanbul Convention because I think this is really crucial. The landmark European Treaty to End Violence Against Women that you all ratified, I believe, this summer. Mariana, do you want to explain why being part of the Istanbul Convention in the environment that we're in with Russia on the ground is so important right now? I suppose that after our ability to ratify Istanbul Convention, everything is possible in Ukraine concerning human rights. War and military actions, they always lead to increased uh, violence, right? We have seen the acts of extreme violence against uh, women on the occupied territories. Actually, uh, we now uh, started a parliamentary commission on investigating the, the sexual crimes committed on the occupied territories chaired by Marina over here. But the sad truth is also that the home violence is increasing because of the situation people are in. And because people coming back from the war, the veterans, they will also need lots of support systems in order to get reintegrated into after-war lives. And unfortunately, people coming back from war do suffer from different disorders, and then it's very difficult for them to reintegrate into their family lives. And the third thing I will point out is that it was symbolically important. It was important to show that this is the direction we are moving into. Because, you know, uh, the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, uh, Patriarch Kirill, he did say that this war started because they, whoever they are, uh, didn't want to see gay parades in Donetsk. You know, this is the, the civilization we are fighting against. And that is why, um, you know, passing, uh, adopting the Istanbul Convention was, was so important to show that this is where we are moving into. Regardless of some conservative elements in Ukrainian society, this is the decision that we have taken as members of parliament representing absolute majority of the population. This is our civilizational choice. But also what is very important, a lot of war crimes is a sexual violation in our countries, especially on occupied territories. And that is why this ratification is so important to protect and to punish that people who has been provide this war crime as sexual violations. 
this is extremely important for us now to support survivors of sexual violence committed by Russian soldiers. We just have numerous cases uh, when uh, such violence was committed uh, towards uh, just uh, not only women, but children, men uh, as well. There is uh, nothing more you can do than uh, to help families uh, take care of their kids. And for that, we need to build the bomb shelters in the kindergartens and schools. And that sounds like something very far away from gender policy. But trust me, if you have a small kid and you cannot send him or her to the kindergarten because there is no bomb shelter, then you cannot talk about any gender equality whatsoever. And I'm sure that if we have that for all our schools, many more women will come back to Ukraine. Many more families will have much less problems there. The women there will be able to get back to work so on and so forth. And this is like our geographical problem, I should say, because uh, we have a neighborhood doesn't want us to exist as a state, as nation, as a culture, as history, etc. Yeah. At the same time, we are like a modern, independent country, you know, we just really fighting uh, for democracy, for freedom and for our like basic right to exist, you know. And uh, I am really uh, appreciate how much uh, the world uh, is united, and uh, I hope that we will able to celebrate our victory together. Marina, Maria, Ina, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for your bravery and your courage. Ukraine's coastal city of Mykolaiv has been on the front line since the earliest days of the Russian invasion. And because of their strategic location along the Black Sea, Mykolaiv has endured some of the worst attacks of this war, with Russian forces often as close as 10 or 15 miles from the center of town. Last April, they blew up their water supply. All of Mykolaiv's taxis, buses, schools, and other city infrastructure have been decimated by Russian missiles. And while that's been happening, across the country, Ukraine's mayors have been targeted, threatened, disappeared, and murdered. Despite all of this, Mykolaiv is standing like a rock. From somewhere deep in the city, the honorable and very brave mayor of Mykolaiv, Oleksandr Sinkovich, finds a quiet moment to share how the Russians just don't get it. And the love for his country, his dedication to democracy, even his humor can't be destroyed. They're trying to kill as many Ukrainians as they can. We have 156 persons died because of bombardments and uh, about 800 people heavily injured. For sure, we don't count those people who were lightly injured. And for sure, this number is, it's, it's a big number actually, but could be bigger because a lot of people left the city. Do you have endured some of the most relentless bombing in this war? I understand the humanitarian crisis in Mykolaiv remains critical and that your needs are immense. Uh, we have a lot of damages, uh, broken schools, hospitals, and many places, which is not in military infrastructure, like it was announced by Putin that he is planning to demilitarize and denazify our country. Mykolaiv is a city where before the war we had half a million people. I could say that about 75-80% of them 
are using Russian as their primary language. So I don't know who he decided to denazify and to protect from Ukrainians. From the first day, we started to build uh, fortifications. So a lot of people started to close the different uh, ways to enter uh, the city for Russian troops. Uh, they started to dig trenches. They started to bring food and equipment for army. We have a lot of volunteers who started to help army without ability to serve an army. And we have another people who took a weapon in their arms and started to defend the city. What Russians trying to do in Ukraine is genocide. For example, on uh, April 12th, they uh, bombarded our pipes, which provide city, provided city with the fresh water. Our water source is created 73 kilometers far from Mykolaiv and near Kherson. So what they done, they put explosives under those pipes and they destroyed pipes. Those are two pipes with the length of 73 kilometers and diameter of uh, 1.4 meter. It was very deliberate what they did with the water. They wanted just to leave the city without water. We started to dig boreholes and got all the water and distributed it using water trucks everywhere in the city. And uh, we also got a lot of help of our partners who provided us with cleaning Osmos systems, also U.S. aid uh, helped us in that matter. And um, in months, we built another pipeline and we're using uh, water from Salzburg River, but you can drink it and you can prepare food with it. So you're hanging on. How are the spirits of your citizens and how are you feeling? Uh, we feel strong, you know, uh, uh, because we fought with the uh, Russians and we were standing strong and our troops defended the city of Mykolaiv and pushed uh, the enemy back to Russia. Our city got the title of a city hero. But we call us not the uh, city hero, but we call us the city of heroes. So people really motivated. They are really know what uh, they are fighting for. We know what we are staying for. Uh, we do this for our families, for our land, for our independence and for our freedom. President Putin is hoping to divide Ukrainians against one another by making you as miserable as possible. It sounds to me like it's not working. I can tell you that everything that he says or thinks and then says, you need to read it vice versa. I mean, when he says we want to save Ukrainians from the government, that means we want to kill Ukrainians. When he says we want to demilitarize, he says we want to have a war. And we understand that it's totally untrue, that they speak and they tell to all the world that the black is white and the white is black. Moreover, it is an intellectual nation, so we are analyzing what is happening. We're changing our presidents. We do revolutions. How difficult has this war made your job as mayor? People ask me, how do you feel? What do you think? I usually answer that I don't have too much time to think. We reacted on all the problems in a moment because we don't have too much time to think. Because we had a lot of military problems, 
problems with water, problems with heating, problems with gas, electricity. But these problems, we were familiar before the war. Our work became harder because you can't plan. We put some deadlines, like we put, we put a deadline that the war will end in April. So we do everything to end this war in April. Then if we have problems, we will change that deadline. The war started on February 24th. And on February 26th, we left the building of the city council. And we were right because in March 29th, they attacked the building of regional council. And that building was ruined and buried there 38 people. Meanwhile, our building was empty. We used a walkie-talkie, a mobile walkie-talkie, to create a communication service between our city services. And all our services were on this walkie-talkie. And I also want to use it afterward because it's an extremely fast way to contact and to connect with people in different directions. Water, gas, heating. Everyone is online and everyone answers in minutes. Mayor Sinkovich, some of the mayors in Ukraine have been targeted, they've been disappeared, they've even been murdered by Russian soldiers. So you're you're very humble in how you describe your office, but it's very serious and important right now. Can you talk a little bit about what it's like to lead Mikhailov at such a dangerous time? I usually change places where I am because Russians still think that if they kill the mayor, the city will give up. And for sure, they don't know how democracy works. People will elect a new mayor <laughs> and i can say like please people give up you know we'll give up and i don't want to do it that's why from the first day of war we changed the place to, to live and i was uh, armed so i started to learn how to shoot and took my automatic rifle kalashnikov now i'm I have a gun to protect myself my family is out of ukraine and for security reasons And now I have all the space to work and to provide city with my services. What has the war done to the city's economy, especially your port, the grain industry, and your shipyards? Nothing works now. I mean, our port infrastructure is not working because we are not able to go out to the sea because there is a peninsula occupied by Russians they can enter that peninsula from Kherson area and we can get there. And from that peninsula, they are able to attack uh, the corridor from the city of Mikhailov, the river where river connects the sea. And uh, it's very dangerous for us to go there. Before our independence, we were well known in the world as a city where all the aircraft carriers of Soviet Union were built. China has two aircraft carriers. One of them is Launinha, is also built in city of Mikhailov. A navy ship, Moskva, that we ruined uh, in the beginning of the war, the Black Sea Russian fleet uh, leader, was also built in the city of Mikhailov. But then after um, the ruin of Soviet Union, Russian oligarchs bought, privatized those shipbuilding plants and bankrupted them. Uh, now, in 30 years after we got independence, we understand why they made so. They just want to kill the uh, shipbuilding in Ukraine. A lot of people who were kind of, you know, loved Russia or, or had some good feelings about it now hate it because 
all the city was bombarded. Almost everyone has relatives who was injured or killed in the city of Mykolaiv. They've really destroyed the city. Right. But we have a plan to renovate it by the plan built back better. So I think it's chance for Mykolaiv to become better, even if it's in such bad circumstances. Part of your vision when you came to this office before the war was to to restore Mykolaiv as a rebirth city and really bring back the old days to Ukraine and, and revitalize the country. Is your wish still the same? It's even bigger because who will do it instead of us? No one. We need to do it. When someone asks me, do you think that Ukrainian troops are slow in counteroffensive on, let's say, in their actions? I usually say it's okay if we are slow, but we lose not many people because our partners can help us with ammunition, with the vehicle, with tank, with everything, but no one will fight for us and for our country except Ukrainian. What is your greatest need right now? We still have problems with drinking water. I think main thing, um, vehicles, public transportation, because a lot of our buses and trolley buses were destroyed or damaged. And a lot of municipal vehicles that work with the roads, with the garbage collection, were damaged or were taken by military people, with soldiers, because they need it also on, on the front line. What is your greatest source of hope right now? Uh... To be honest, my family inspires me. As I told you before, that we all Ukrainians are inspired by Ukrainians because we know what we are fighting for. We want our country to be peaceful and our families to come back in our cities and to be together with us. But Ukrainians want to work, want to earn money, and want to come back. People love to be Ukrainian. Sure, right, because we were born Ukrainians, you know. (laughs) Are you concerned at all about winter? We prepared the city for the winter starting from March last year. We do everything to trying to think forward, to um, prepare all the necessary services, like heating, boiler house, we repaired them, we um, covered them with different fortifications. We bought an additional mobile boiler house to switch it on in case of ruins of our boiler houses, uh, like a temporary. And we also, uh, in a very tight connection with the Denmark government, who are helping us, and they also provide us with pipes, with different techniques, with the building materials, which helped us to close at least all the windows We close windows now, not with the glass, because of bombardments, we close them with the plywood. It sounds like you're getting smarter and smarter as this war goes on, at least adapting better in your city. Right. Everything that don't kill us make us stronger, you know. I understand Mykolaiv's theater recently opened to its 100th season. Have you been there? It was in the bomb shelter, you know. It was not grand opening. But uh, they worked all the war. They helped uh, some of actors worked as volunteers. Several still serve in army. And we have some underground places where rock groups play their music. So 
life exists even under bombardments because soldiers and people need to be inspired and remember what they are fighting for. If there was one thing you could tell everybody about Mykolaiv and, and the situation that you're all in, what would that be? Mykolaiv is a city of big future, so for sure you are welcome to Mykolaiv after the war because it's definitely a city of heroes. Mayor Sankovic, we just thank you so much for your time from the front lines, from taking away from your city. We're grateful that you were able to talk to us today. Thank you for your interest to our city and hope to see you after the war. The mayor tells me for now, Mikolaev is working around two types of blackouts. The first, an emergency outage can come at any time. The second, scheduled blackout, gives the city four hours of light and two hours of darkness. Mayor Sinkovich says the predictability keeps the outages from becoming too disruptive. And as soon as there's a change, the city makes an announcement and citizens plan for a new schedule. On the next episode, amid a dire energy situation, kamikaze drone attacks and blackouts, the Honorable Mayor of Kyiv, Vitaly Klitschko, returns to the podcast. Kyiv is the capital of Ukraine. Kyiv was and still target of, of Russians. You'll hear the former world heavyweight boxing champ share an unfiltered look at the battle for his hometown. That's ahead as Defending Democracy Ukraine continues. Democracy, the podcast, is brought to you by the Consortium for Elections and Political Process Strengthening through the Democratic Elections Political Processes Cooperative Agreement and is made possible by the generous support of the American people through the United States Agency for International Development. Opinions expressed here are those of the host and the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of USAID or the United States government. This podcast is produced by Evo Terra and Sam Walker of Simpler Media Productions. For more information on Democracy, the podcast, and to access the complete archives, please visit seps.org forward slash podcast. <laughs>